0: This is uh, from Matthew 5 right after where we left off last week. Matthew 5:17 through 24. Jesus is talking. He says, "Hey people, hey disciples, don't think don't don't think in your minds that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them. I've come to fulfill them." For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot. Those are in Hebrew like a dot over an I or a slash over a T. Not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of even the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does these commandments and teaches them will be called great in my kingdom. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, which were seen in that culture like the Pope, super tidy religious people, they had their ducks in a row. Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of those guys, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You've heard it said, and he's doing a case study now. You've heard it said, that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, that anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, uh, raka, which was a curse word, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, if you're at church offering your gift, and you remember... That your brother or sister has something against you, not that you have something against them, but if you remember they have something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. Your top priority, he says, should first be to go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Let's pray. Jesus, we pray that uh, you would help us to understand the very things you just said. We pray that you would um, push them deep into our hearts and in our minds, get them to places that we can't take them ourselves. We pray that you administer to us as a priest, teach us like a prophet, lead us and protect us like a king. We pray in your name. Amen. You can take a seat. Thanks. So one of my little side jobs that I've done over the past five or six years is I grade papers for uh, my graduate school or my seminary. And so a lot of these students who are doing these online counseling classes will... Turn in all these papers throughout the course of the semester. And uh, at least one night a week, I'll stay up super late grading through all of these papers. And there's a bunch of other uh, TAs or or graders that that do this. And so every now and then, we'll swap a bunch of emails together. And one of the uh, TAs will be really frustrated because they'll be like, how are we supposed to know what an A paper is or what a B or what a C paper is? Like, this seems so subjective and willy-nilly. How are we supposed to know how to grade these? And uh, over the years, uh, I guess a couple of years ago, one of the secretaries at the seminary finally sat down and put a little bullet point grading scale or rubric together. Like, an A paper is a paper that talks about this, this, and this. A B paper does this, this, and this. But even then, it's not really helpful. It was still super vague, and it's like, well, that's what the secretary thinks. So, like, what's the professor think? We still don't know. And so, what I've realized over the years, the number one factor that determined how I grade, what grade I put on that student's paper, was how they compared to everyone else in the class. Particularly, how their paper compared to the one I just read before it. So, if I had just read a really bad paper before it, and then your paper comes along next, your paper looks awesome. And so, I have to catch myself, I'm prone to give you a higher grade. Converse is true as well. If the paper before you knocked it out of the park and you did a pretty good job, but compared to them a really bad job, your grade reflected it. And uh, I'm sorry, but this is the way it goes with your professors too. Um, You better hope they're not in a bad mood when your test comes around. What I just described is what we call grading on a curve, right? Grading on a curve means there is no standard. There is no absolute standard you're being compared to. The standard you're being compared to is relative. It's your classmates, right? And so you've probably had instances like this, where the whole class did really poorly on an exam, but you did a little bit better than the rest of them, and so you got an A. Um, And it doesn't really mean that you knew the material or that you had mastered the material. That's what an A means. All it means is you knew a little bit more than the other people who didn't know anything. I remembered uh, one of my classes in seminary, I got like a 62 on a Hebrew exam. But because the class average was a 45, I got an A in one of the top grades in the class. And it was awesome. I put it on the fridge. It was like magic. A 62 became like a 98. It was great. I was really proud of it. But... When you hear the story, that 98, that A meant nothing, right? It did not mean that I knew my Hebrew that week. It didn't mean that I grasped it. All it meant is I was better than the next guy who uh, was a little bit lower than I was. So this doesn't sound like a bad deal at all, right? I, I guarantee you every single one of you loves the curve just like I do because uh, you, you do better than you really do. But let me ask you a question, when the stakes are higher, what kind of surgeon do you want untangling and removing the tumor from your mom's brain stem? The surgeon who got a 62 on pathophysiology but was curved up to an A? Or do you want the surgeon who got a true 98 because he was graded against an absolute standard? When you pay a lot of money to take your car to the shop or take your laptop to get repaired uh, and, and you've just paid them a couple hundred bucks that you didn't have, do you want the mechanic who really failed his or her exams through mechanic school but got curved up to an A and so they got a great job or do you want the person who actually knows how to fix your car or fix your laptop? When the stakes are high, None of us like the curve if we're on the other end of it, right? And and those those illustrations are a little bit silly, but they expose that curved grades are meaningless grades. They're hollow. They don't mean anything. They don't communicate anything except that you did better than the other people who failed miserably. You failed a little bit less miserably than they did. That's all it means. When the stakes are high, the curve becomes hollow. Here's the point of this story. Every one of us in the room, myself, you, whether you're a Christian, not a Christian, religious, not religious, whatever, no matter how you ended up in the room tonight, you are prone always to believe that the God of all reality, the living God, the all-seeing, all-knowing, all-present, all-good God, grades you on a curve. You're prone to think that about Him. And we are all people who who are prone to grading ourselves on a curve. Right? Think about the last times you compared yourself to another person. If I could attach like a blood pressure cuff or some emotion detector, when do your emotions kick in? You say, yeah, I make mistakes, nothing detected yet, but not as bad as that guy, boop, 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 boop. boop. His mistakes bother you, yours don't. My leaving dirty dishes out doesn't bother me. My family's does. This is comparative standard. We're prone to curve ourselves. We're prone to grade ourselves on a curve. I'm better than the next person, so therefore I'm good. I got an A. Doing great this week. And we also think that God grades us on a curve, that he relaxes his law, that he bends it to fit where we are, um, that he kind of lowers the bar um, so that we can get over it. Here's how it comes out in our thinking, right? Listen to this. Is it like a? I don't know what the word "as" is grammatically. Is it? It's like a word of comparison or a simile or something. But hear how often this is how we think. This is our internal dialogue. I'm not as considerate as my as inconsiderate as my roommate. I, I don't get as sloppily drunk on the weekends. I don't hook up with as many guys or girls. I don't go as far as the other guys do. The porn I look at at least isn't as bad as the stuff other people look at. It's always comparing, right? Always comparing to other people. We grade ourselves on a curve. We think this gets so deep in our minds that we think God grades us on a curve too. By the way, we don't grade other people on a curve. We grade them by an absolute standard, right? If people deviate or break your idea of the way it should be done, it's a black and white deal, right? It's not like, oh, that was a... You know, you annoyed me a little bit. It's like, you did it wrong, so we have an instinctive absolute standard inside of us. But when it comes to how God looks at us, we think He grades on a curve. And when it comes to how we look at ourselves, we grade ourselves on a curve. The, the effect of that is dangerous because the effect of thinking that God grades on a curve or that the earth or, or looking at yourself in a curved kind of way, means that we brush off his law. It means that we brush off absolutes altogether. And we we fancy ourselves as if we live in a world without absolutes. A fanciful idea that we can't afford to live like that's true even for an hour. We're prone to thinking about these things. We find clever ways to erase God's law. We abolish it by justifying ourselves. We relax the standard by rationalizing. We ignore it by distraction. We, uh, we, we wiggle our way out by saying, well, this piece doesn't apply anymore. It doesn't apply to me or that my situation's unique. And so the danger is we, we slap an A on ourselves that means nothing, right? Does that make sense? We feel, this is where your emotions, your emotions will lie to you because your brain, your mind has told your emotions, I'm doing pretty good. So your emotions start feeling perfectly content. Have you ever felt like, man, I don't feel like a sinner. Why are these guys telling me I'm I'm sinful? Why are they telling me I'm guilty? I don't feel guilty. Well, do you understand why? We lie to ourselves long enough. We curve ourselves long enough. We put that A on the fridge, baby. And I'm awesome. Or even if you don't think you're awesome, you think you're better than most people, just like I do. I'm prone to. And so, this is the way we think. This is just kind of describing the problem. And it's describing why Jesus even says this stuff when he's describing his kingdom and what life in his kingdom is like. Problems usually get a little bit worse before they get better. This one does too. Because it's not just that we do this with ourselves or think God does this with us, but... If you're a Christian, Jesus is talking to his disciples, his followers here. So Christians in the room, you and I are prone to thinking that what Jesus came to do was kind of play ball with this grade curving. Make things a little bit easier for us to, to scoot by on our own, right? To kind of like, oh, well, God was angry in the Old Testament, but now he's nice. It's a little bit easy for me to kind of play by the rules and make him happy, right? We think that he's come to abolish the law, to relax it, just like Jesus says in the passage. But that's not what he's come to do at all. We fundamentally misunderstand what he's come to do. Look, it wasn't until I started coming across passages like this, especially the the line where he says... um, Do not think that an iota or a tittle, it says dot here, but an iota or a tittle will pass away from the law until it's accomplished. That verse, I remember, 23 years old, punched me in the stomach like a freight train. I'd never come across anything like that before. I'd always thought that my functional beliefs about God were God's a nice guy... And he's like that really super cool professor where if you try and you're like, man, I misread the question, or I, I, I was thinking this, but I put down that, uh, can you kind of give me some grace here and let me buy it? And he's like, yeah, sure, what a, what a, whatever. I always saw him as that. There was no absolute. It was always being compared to other people that I was better than. When I came across passages like this, that is when I started to realize who I'm being compared to By God is God. Not you guys or you ladies. The moral absolute, the standard that God compares his image bearers to. He made you, you belong to him. He made you for himself. The person he compares you to, measures you against, is himself. His holiness, his righteousness, his purity. His inner thoughts, his secret thoughts, his desires, his dreams, his goals, his relationship. Friends, if you let that thought occupy space in your mind more than a few seconds, you start taking God a lot more seriously. If you're scared by the thought of that, you will not let the thought come into your brain even right now. You'll go back to whatever you're thinking about right now you will become impenetrable because it's a scary thought that the person we are being held up against is God himself. He is the standard. That's why breaking the law, that's why sin, that's why disobedience is such a big deal to him. It doesn't just mean that we broke the speed limit, some arbitrary, stupid little rule. What it means is fundamentally we're not like him, even though we were made to be like him. We were made to image him, to represent him, to show the world what he looks like, what he is like, what his character is like. It is a breach against his very person. Not against arbitrary rules. He's not tyrannical. This is actually reasonable. That's why this is such a big deal. And that's when I started to take God seriously. 23 years old. The first time I ever... I don't know if it's the first time I heard it. I probably heard it before, but I didn't really hear it, right? But I came across this stuff and it hit me. Sinclair Ferguson's a guy I quote a lot. He's a a pastor uh, um, up in Philadelphia and he lives in Scotland now. He says this, Jesus didn't weaken the law. On the contrary, he let the law out of the cage in which the Pharisees had imprisoned it allowing it to pounce on our secret thoughts and our secret motives and to tear to pieces our bland assumption that we are able to keep the law on our own strength. That's what I was saying. Until I was 23, the law of God had never been set free on me to pounce on my secret thoughts that none of you ever had access to knowing I really thought or my secret desires that none of you ever really know about because I wouldn't let you see Till I was 23, the law of God didn't tear down my bland assumption that I was able to keep his law on my own strength. Imagine this. If you're at a place where you resonate with what I'm just talking about, imagine two scenarios. One, it's like I have, I have a, a brick I'm holding in my hand. And in the other one, I'm holding a sponge. And the law... Is like a cup of water being poured out over that brick and over that sponge. What I'm saying is, before that moment when God helped me understand what His law was actually intended to do, what it was for, all my life, I grew up in the church, I grew up religious, I grew up, it was like this water pouring on the brick. It couldn't get inside me, and so it splattered. Some of you are like that right now. Uh, you're hard, you're cold. God's law has no effect on you. You don't feel guilty. You don't feel convicted. You don't feel these things because the law is all around you, but it only has a superficial penetration of you. It doesn't get into you. Conversely, when Jesus, in his mercy, made me alive, gave me a new heart, which is always his promise in the Old Testament. When I come to rescue all of you guys and me, when I come to rescue, I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to take the brick out and I'm going to put a sponge in there. And so when my law pours over you, instead of splattering around and not being able to get inside of you because you're so hard and cold, it's your heart soaks it up. And that water hits every single little fiber in that sponge. Every little hole, every little nook and cranny, that law saturates and comes inside of. That's what Ferguson means when he says that the law... Counts as on our secret thoughts and our motives. It goes everywhere in our hearts, everywhere in our motivations, everywhere in our desires, and it starts turning up the lights there and saying, Ben, Ben, this is who you really are. This is what you're really like. It's time we have an honest conversation. It's time we stop toying around with each other. It's time we talk about the elephants in the room. And stop pretending like we're good people. That's the second point. The law is an x ray, not a camera. (laughs) An x ray and a camera both see the same person. You push a button, they both take a picture of the exact same image. But x ray penetrates the image, an x ray sees through it, and a camera only picks up the very outer surface. The Pharisees, the scribes, the Jews in Jesus' day, the reason Jesus is having to say this is they were prone like we are to think that the law of God is like a camera. It's about the externals. What are you doing on the outside? What, your behavior. Oh, wait, I shouldn't cuss as much. I should, instead, I should say this. The externals, not the heart of the matter of like, why am I so bitter? Why is there so much anger in my heart? It convicts me every day. The law is about the internals. The law is aimed at your insides. Not just your outsides. And so murder isn't just about buying a gun and killing someone. Murder is about an attitude of the heart that steals a person's life from them because you don't think they're worthy of living. And so we use our words or we use our avoidance of a person to erase them out of the world. That's murder. It is an x-ray. This is when we begin to get convicted, right? Because we're like, well, I grew up, I literally thought these thoughts. I haven't killed anybody. I haven't stolen anything except for some answers I looked at from a kid's paper in middle school. But I never, like, stole a car or anything. I'm, like, doing pretty good with these Ten Commandments. Jesus says, no, 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 it's not a camera. You can fake for a camera, right? You can put makeup on. You can put clothes on. You, you, can, you can be full of cancer, and a camera doesn't pick up any of it. A camera doesn't see it. All it sees is the externals. So if you're like bleeding all over your arm, something massive has happened or major, like you killed someone or you committed adultery or whatever, you're like, okay, that's obvious. The camera picked it up. But the x-ray sees everything. The law of God, Jesus is saying, is about the insides. That's why he does these two case studies after kind of the bulk of this passage. He talks about murder and lust as two little four examples He said, you have heard it said, you shall not murder. Everyone in that room was thinking, yeah, and I'm doing pretty good. I haven't, like, as of yet, I'm not on death row for murdering someone. Jesus says, but I say to you, look at the x-ray. Is there murder in your heart? He says, don't, the law says don't commit adultery. But the law doesn't just mean don't go have sex with some man's wife. The law is aimed at your insides. The law is saying people aren't objects. People aren't animals there for your consumption and disposal. People bear the image of God. And sex is to image God's relationship with His people. There is no greater euphoria in this life than that. And God is saying it is to be used with great caution and great joy between a man and his wife or a wife or a woman and her husband. And that is what the law is aimed at, y'all. Have you experienced the law of God just as a camera and thereby have very little sense of your need for God's grace or Jesus? Or have you experienced the law of God as an x-ray and you have seen it expose you, pull you out into the light and tell you the truth about yourself, what's true about you deep down? The law x-rays you so that you will be aware of your need for the great physician we've talked about this about every year this passage something about this passage will come up every now and then so we talk about it if you've been around you've heard me say it before but when you're in the emergency room and you're waiting on the doctor to come back with the x-rays and stuff and she puts the x-ray up on that little like light board is she doing that to rub your face in your misery what an idiot. You broke your leg. Look at this. That's horrible. It's supposed to be like this, but it's like this. <laughs> Does she do it to say, sucks to be you? Man, that's, that looks painful. You shouldn't, have, uh, you, you, know, you shouldn't have gone for the slide tackle. You shouldn't have jumped off that thing. Go on your way now. That's cruel. That's harsh. That's not love. If the doctor is competent, able, and willing to help you, the doctor comes back and she puts that x-ray on the board because she wants you to know your true condition so that you will submit to the cure. Because when she tries to start setting your leg, you're going to resist, especially if you don't think your leg is broken. Right? The x-ray of the law is to bring you to a point of crying out for your need of the one God sent to heal you. You will not submit to him. You will not listen to him. You will not let him touch you until you realize how broken you are. And the law is God's gift to you to x-ray you and to say, would you like to meet the real you? Would you like to see the you that I see? And he doesn't do it to rub your face in it or to mock you. Or to send you back on your way and say, Guess you should have behaved better. Guess you shouldn't have done that with that girl or that guy. No. It is a step unto healing if you will embrace it. The third and final point is where the good news comes in. If you've not been around Christianity long, or uh, maybe you grew up religious, or maybe you grew up in a church, but it's just been burdensome to you, and it's just been rules, rules, rules color inside the lines, don't screw up or we'll ostracize you, then you are ripe for hearing news that's actually good, which is what the Bible contains from front cover to back cover. It's the gospel, which means good news. Jesus says it in the passage, verse 17, Don't you think that I have come to abolish the law? Why? Because the law has a good purpose for you. It's to expose you. Get you ready for the next part of a sentence. I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. What does that mean? That Jesus didn't come to lower the bar, but to keep it right where it is and meet the standard. It means this. There's some things that you need to do that God has commanded you to do that you can't do. You can't undo the stuff that you've done, right? We know that. Genie's out of the bottle. We live with the consequences every day. All of us do. We regret things. We're ashamed of things. We're afraid of stuff, stuff, stuff getting out. We can't undo the stuff in the past. We get that much, right? But there's stuff that we can't change about ourselves. How do you change your desires? How do you change the driving motivation of your life or the reason you do what you do or avoid what you avoid? You can't change those things. On your own. And so God is either in a position where he's going to do one of two things. He's going to watch us spiral into our own death and misery. Or he's going to send someone who can obey the law on your behalf. It's got to be someone who's not been tainted and corrupted and killed by all the stuff that we're born with born spiritually it's got to be someone who's outside of that it's got to be someone powerful enough pure enough righteous enough good enough holy enough loving enough to be able to do it and it's got to be someone who's willing to do it because who would want to sign up for that yeah i'll take the hit for all of these corrupt wicked people i'll do it who's going to do that someone's got to be able someone's got to be willing someone's got to be equipped Bible, cover to cover, is the story of the rescuer that God had sent, which is he himself, Jesus Christ, come to earth to live the life that you should have lived but can't. To die the death that you should have died but don't have to. We sang it. Upon a life I did not live. Upon a death I did not die. I stake my whole eternity. Friends, the Christian life, if you want to know what the Bible's about, it's about look to Jesus. He has obeyed on your behalf. It's not about obey so that you can make God happy. It's look at the rescuer God has sent to do what you can't do. He knows you can't do it. Stop trying to do it. And let the one who did it carry you. Let him substitute for you. Let him give you his record. Let him take your record. Jesus fulfills the law by obeying every jot and tittle of it. God is a fair judge. He doesn't bend the law to fit the criminal. And you wouldn't want a judge like that either if it was a family member or you who is the victim of a violent crime. And the judge says, well, you know what? The guy's kind of a nice guy, so let's just say that that wasn't technically molestation. Let's just say it was this. You don't want that. You'd start a riot. God doesn't bend His standard. He meets His own standard, and He gives it to you freely. Jesus fulfills the law in His death, which means that when you imagine in your mind's eye or hear in the Scriptures that Jesus Christ, God, died, murdered on a cross, executed unjustly, That he said to his father, why have you left me? Why have you forsaken me? Why are my prayers bouncing off the ceiling as it were? You should see him doing what should have happened to me, to you. Jesus died a death. You cannot die. He bore the punishment and the penalty for all of the law breaking that we have done. All of the stuff the x-ray picked up. Jesus said, I'll take it. I'll take it. I'll take it. That secret thought, that secret desire, that thing you've been hiding and never talking about, I'll take that too. I'll bear it publicly. I'll be laughed at, spat upon, ridiculed, dismissed, ostracized, ridiculed. And I'll die and I'll take my own penalty, my own Father's wrath on behalf of all of those who look to me and come to me. He fulfills the law in His life. He fulfills the law in His death. And here's where we end. He fulfills His law in his people. Here's where we're going to have to put on our big boy and big girl pants because I'm about to say some things that seems to contradict what I've already said. Jesus didn't just die for you to forgive you for all the law breaking you did and I've done. Jesus died for you so that you can keep the law. Do you remember what the law is summarized as in the Bible? It's the, the tweet. it's the Bible's tweet version of if you, if you want kind of 140 characters of what all of the laws in the Bible, all the commands are really about. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your strength, your soul. And love your neighbor as yourself. That's it. That's the law. Jesus died so that you could love God. Jesus died so that you could be loved by God. Jesus died so that you would love your neighbors and be able to. Grace does not negate your destiny and let you chill where you are. Grace takes you somewhere new. Grace changes you. Grace reopens the door to your destiny. Here's what I mean by that. If you're a human being, your destiny is to be a law keeper, which means a lover of everyone around you. And of the God who made you for himself. That is your destiny. It's what you were designed to do. Grace doesn't negate that. Grace opens the door so that you can pursue that again, so that you can become what you were always made to be. Think of it this way caterpillars were made to be butterflies. Caterpillar isn't the terminal degree for a caterpillar. That thing was made to get the wings and fly, right? Caterpillars were made to be butterflies. But a caterpillar can't make himself a butterfly, right? Can't, come on, come on, come on, come on, boom! Still a caterpillar. Shoot. Uh, Maybe I'll eat this kind of leaf. Oh, still a caterpillar. Caterpillar can't will his way into being a butterfly. He can't eat his way. He can't behave his way into the metamorphosis that's required To transform his very being. Some power bigger and outside of himself has to intervene and bring about that process. You can call it God. You can call it nature. You can call it whatever you want. But some bigger transcendent process has to come and change Mr. Caterpillar into Mr. Butterfly. And if that happens, if that metamorphosis happens, then it opens the door again. To what that caterpillar was always meant to be. That process brings Mr. Caterpillar to what he was always designed to be. Which is not a creature bound to the earth, but a creature set for the skies. Wouldn't it be silly for nature to say, Well, Mr. Caterpillar, you can't become a butterfly yourself. And so I'm going to do something extra special for you. We're just going to forget about the whole butterfly thing. Just forget about it. it was a, I mean, it was an unrealistic idea anyway, that you could fly, that you could, like, pollinate flowers and go to Mexico every winter. It's just not going to happen. <laughs> don't worry about flying anymore. Just keep crawling on the ground. You're welcome. We laugh. If you're the caterpillar, you get so angry. She's like, but I was made to be a butterfly. Don't tell me I don't have to be a butterfly anymore. I was made to be one. It'd be stupid and silly. It would not be good news. For him to say, well, let's just forget about it. Similarly, a person is made to be righteous. A human being is made to be holy. A human being is made to be a lover of God and other people. But you can't become righteous or holy or a lover of God or other people on your own. Some bigger process, transcendent and outside of you, has to intervene and bring about that metamorphosis, that transformation. And that process, we'll call it grace, opens the door again to the destiny you were designed to have from the beginning. And wouldn't it be silly for God to say, well, Mr. or Mrs. Person that I made, you can't make yourself a law keeper and a law lover, so I'm just going to do something extra special for you. Let's just forget about that whole obedience thing. Let's just forget about the whole love your neighbor thing and repent of your sins. Let's forget about the love me thing. And just kind of, uh, let's just say, keep on being you. Like, keep on giving in to all those selfish impulses and putting yourself before other people and ignoring me. Like, just forget we ever had the conversation about you flying and loving and living and walking away from the enslavement of sin. Forget we mentioned it. Okay? You're welcome. You'd be devastated by that news. Because something inside of you, and Scripture itself says you were made to fly. Don't settle to be earthbound. You were made to love. You were made to be about someone bigger than you. It is not good news for someone to say, don't worry about the law. You're a Christian now. Jesus forgives you. Don't worry about gossip. Don't worry about that. That is bad news. Do you see that? This horrible news. We don't want that to be true, even though we kind of think we do sometimes. God's grace has, or if it hasn't for you yet, he says even tonight it could, it will, transform you from a caterpillar to a butterfly, from an enemy to a daughter, from an enemy to a son, from someone alienated and cast far off from God to someone who is married to him that is his promise in the gospel. And he says he didn't just do that to make you clean again and push reset on you. He did it to put wings on you so that you could keep the law. So that when you think about your friends, we're able to say, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, whoa hold up, heart, hold up, heart. Talking about my friend in that way is murdering my friend." I need to I need to stop this whole church thing and I need to go have a conversation with my friend in the parking lot. What's wrong between us? Jesus literally says that. If you're at church and the offering plate's about to come around, get yourself up, go to the lobby, find that person, and say, I'm, what's, we need to talk. Because what's going on between me and you is what is way more important than what's going on in there right now. You're free to do that. That's what flying looks like. You're free to look at your sisters in this room and not objectify them and sexualize them. You're free to look at the guys in this room and not look at them as opportunities or look at them as objects, but to see them as brothers who are complex and three-dimensional and worthy of getting to know. That is what all this means. Jesus gives the Christian the law back. And he says, now it's safe. Before you were a Christian, you would have used this stuff to try to make me happy. But now I've made you good. I've declared you mine. I've declared you innocent. So here's the law back. It's safe for you now. It shows you what love looks like. It shows you how to live. Jesus fulfills the law in his life. He fulfills it in his death. He fulfills it in making us new and fulfilling it in us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus. We do uh, ask that you would make these things true for us. There's a lot of confusing things that I just said. I probably didn't make sense like I should have. Would you untangle the knots? Would you lift the fog? Would you take whatever pieces of tonight uh, were true and good and right? And would you push them deep into people's minds and hearts and mine too? Because you know I need it. And I know they need it. We ask this in your name.